In Acts chapter 5, the author Luke records the story of a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who try to deceive the apostles and end up paying for it with their lives. It's a difficult passage that many readers find problematic. If you spend any time in Christian circles, you may have heard statements like, the wrath of God that we see expressed in the Old Testament was satisfied in the death of Christ. Now that we are in the New Covenant and we have Jesus, it's all peace and love, right? All that Old Testament wrath stuff has been done away with. If you take that line of thinking, Acts 5 will give you second thoughts. The swift punishment of Ananias and Sapphira's sin is reminiscent of the kind of judgment we see in the Old Testament. Readers are left with questions. Why no opportunity of repentance? Why no chance to be restored? It's a harsh passage, and no commentary or sermon has ever been able to blunt the edge. But perhaps that was Luke's intention all along. Hello everyone, grace and peace to all of you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host Ian Brown. Before we get into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I just wanted to uh, encourage you to subscribe to the podcast if you have not already. If you enjoy this show, if you've been blessed, if you found this content valuable to your spiritual life, uh, please subscribe. Uh, Whatever uh, platform you're listening on, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, um, Overcast, wherever you find yourself listening, go ahead and um, subscribe or follow if you have that option. Also, if uh, you like the show and you want to support the work I'm doing, the best way you can do that right now is to simply just spread the word. Tell a friend, text a family member, share a link on social media. That would be hugely helpful. Also, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, is a phenomenal way to help and um, really benefits the show as I try to get the word out. So I'd be very grateful to have your support in those ways. So as I said in the introduction, the seemingly peculiar story of Ananias and Sapphira is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 5. I'll start off by reading the story. It's not a terribly long passage, and then I'll offer some commentary that hopefully will give you some insight on what's going on in the text. To give you some background first, though, remember that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples instructions to stay in Jerusalem until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in the previous episode. The followers of Jesus are baptized with the Holy Spirit during the Feast of Pentecost. They began speaking with other tongues, and the diaspora Jews heard them in their own languages. There was a lot of confusion going on. Some people were amazed, but other people made fun of them, saying that the disciples were just drunk. And this is when Peter gets up and says those famous words in Acts chapter 2 that just send a a chill down every good Pentecostal's spine, right? Peter gets up and says that these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Rather, this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. Peter goes into a whole sermon there in Acts 2, preaching the gospel. 
And the Bible says that those who heard were cut to the heart and 3,000 people accepted the message, believed in Christ, that he was the Messiah, and they were baptized. That was the birthday, you could say, of the church. Acts 2 goes on to talk about how the early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread together, and to prayer. The scripture goes on to talk about how they held everything in common and voluntarily began selling off their possessions and distributed all the proceeds to fellow believers as the needs arose. This was the condition of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. Tight-knit, uh, tight-knit community, close fellowship, radical generosity, devotion to prayer, and the apostles' teachings, and the regular occurrence of miraculous signs. So as the book of Acts continues to unfold, in chapter 3, uh, Peter and John go to the Jerusalem temple to pray when they meet a man lame from birth begging for alms. Now apparently Peter and John didn't have any cash on them at the time because if they did, we wouldn't get these other famous words put so poetically in the King James Version. Peter says to the lame man, "'Silver and gold have I none,' But such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And after Peter says those words, Luke records that he took the man by the right hand, and the man's feet and ankle bones received strength, and he went into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And this, of course, causes a huge commotion as crowds of people come to witness the the miracle, Peter, seeing this massive crowd, marveling at the formerly lame man, seizes an opportunity to preach. And it's a rather rather scathing sermon. Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered into the hands of Pilate, whom you denied when Pilate tried to release him and chose a murderer instead. This man has been given perfect health by faith in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. (laughs) Those are awfully, awfully bold statements, followed by a plea to repent and accept Jesus as Messiah. Now, as one would expect, that did not go over very well with the Jewish temple leadership. Acts chapter 4 begins as Peter is still preaching, and as the chapter unfolds, we see the religious leaders and the captain of the temple guard come and arrest Peter and John for preaching in the name of Jesus and preaching the resurrection of the dead. It was too little too late, however, for the Jewish leadership because Scripture says that the number of people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah grew to 5,000. So Peter and John are kept in prison overnight and are questioned by the Jewish temple leadership. However, because all of the people were still praising God for the healing of the lame man, the man had been Uh, unable to walk for 40 years, it was a bona fide miracle, they couldn't find any way to punish Peter and John because it would have just caused an uproar. All they could do was threaten them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So Acts 4 
ends with Peter and John being released and reporting to their friends the threats of the chief priests and the elders. Upon hearing this news, the believers pray to God to help them continue speaking the word with boldness and with signs and wonders following. The Bible says that when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So immediately after that episode, Luke ends chapter 4 by telling us that all who believed were of one heart and one soul, and that they had everything in common. We're repeating themes from chapter 2. One heart, one soul, and they held everything in common. The apostles were giving their testimony about the resurrection of Jesus with great power, and there were no needy people among them. The believers were selling lands and houses and possessions and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet, and the funds would be distributed as needs arose in the community. This is the context for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The church of Jesus Christ is in its infancy. The gospel is being preached with great boldness. Miracles and signs and wonders are taking place. But on the same token, the fires of persecution are starting to heat up. The arrest of Peter and John is a, a mild taste of the trials that the New Testament church was about to go through. In other words, this was a very, a very delicate time for the church in Jerusalem. With all that in mind, let me read the final two verses of Acts chapter 4 for you, because it will set up the contrast of chapter 5, which I'll begin reading immediately after. And this is going to be uh, ESV, English Standard Version. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So you can see uh, why this is problematic to a lot of people. Even though we can all agree the deception is wrong, sudden death as a punishment for lying seems to be a bit of an, uh, a bit of an overkill, let's say. And that bad joke was totally intended, by the way. 
To help shed some light on this, I'm going to be drawing from a 2013 article in New Testament Studies, which is an academic journal published by the Cambridge University Press. The title of the article is The Improper Temple Offering of Ananias and Sapphira, written by Anthony Ledon. In the article, the author argues that in the narrative of the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the church, uh, the Greek word being ekklesia, serves as the mediator of the Lord's presence. So just as improper behavior in the Old Testament temple could result in instant death, think Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10, or the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant, so could improper behavior in the presence of the Holy Spirit at Solomon's portico bring catastrophic results. Solomon's portico, also called the Court of the Gentiles, is the section of the Jerusalem temple where the believers in Jesus, the church, the ecclesia, would meet in the early days. Let me quote directly from that article here. Ladon writes that the story of Ananias and Sapphira, quote, serves to establish the ecclesia as the mediator of the Lord's presence within the Jerusalem temple. This story serves as apologetic proof that the presence of the Lord had extended beyond the Holy of Holies to the court of the Gentiles, wherein the ecclesia had become the spiritual, social, and religio-fiscal leadership of restored Israel. In this way, the severity of the divine response can be more fully appreciated when the temple setting of the story is emphasized. End quote. Notice that line towards the end, the ecclesia had become the spiritual, social, and religio-fiscal leadership of restored Israel. Recall to your mind chapter 1 of the book of Acts. The resurrected Christ had been spending time with the disciples talking about the kingdom of God, and the big question on everyone's mind before Christ ascended into the heavens was, is now the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And what is Jesus's answer to that question? Don't worry about it, right? It's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But Jesus goes on, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Underlying the disciples' question about the restoration of the kingdom and Jesus' answer is a tradition which held that Yahweh's divine presence had forsaken the temple since the time of the exile. Something important to understand is that during the period right before the Babylonian exile, the Israelites lost the, um, the awareness, let's say, that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and can manifest his presence in a special way anywhere he pleases. It is true that in the Old Covenant, the main place where he manifested his presence was in the Jerusalem temple, but he was not restricted there by any means. The Israelites lost sight of that fact, and a belief that Yahweh's presence either could or would never leave his temple became prevalent. And this is why the people did not heed the warnings of Jeremiah, calling them to repent of their sins, lest Jerusalem be destroyed. The reasoning was, if the presence of the Lord 
was in the Jerusalem temple, then how could the city be destroyed? It didn't make any sense to them. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet experiences a vision in which he sees the throne chariot of Yahweh, a symbol of God's powerful presence, departing the temple because of the many sins and abominations of Israel. That was a huge, huge shock to the system that left the Jewish people reeling. Ezekiel, however, had another vision, this one recorded later in the book in chapters 40 through 43. In this second vision of a temple, the prophet sees a new temple that would be built when the Lord restored the Israelites to the land. And this time, the glory of the God of Israel would come from the east like the sound of many waters and fill this second temple. This would have been a comforting message to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. And indeed, when they were returned to their land under the Persian king Cyrus, a second temple was constructed in Jerusalem. However, if you read Ezekiel 40 through 43, you get the sense from the descriptions of the various structures in the temple that God never intended for Israel to build it. God never intended for Israel to physically build this second temple Ezekiel spoke of in his vision. This was going to be a temple that God would build himself. It was a symbolic way of saying that when the kingdom was restored to Israel, life in the land would be reminiscent of the glory days of King Solomon's early reign, when the glorious presence of the Lord was so thick in the newly constructed temple that the priests could not even stand to minister. So we have this sense in Second Temple Judaism that even though the Jews are back in the land, even though the Jews have a physical presence in the land that was promised to their ancestors by Yahweh, even though there's been a measure of restoration in that way, the exile was still not totally over. Why? First, because they were still being ruled by their enemies. First the Persians, then the Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. Secondly, because there was a sense that Yahweh's divine presence was not dwelling in the temple in the same way as the old days. Luke actually picks up on this in chapter 13 of his gospel. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that line about how the house has been forsaken is reminiscent of language from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And that last line, this is important, that last line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, comes from verse 26. Now, I'm going to pick up Anthony Ladon's article here as he writes pertaining to Jesus' lament. Quote, Here Jesus looks for the ingathering of Israel, but laments that this is necessarily linked with the time of blessing described in Psalm 118. According to Luke, 
this blessing will, or must, come from the lips of Jerusalem's inhabitants, presumably in recognition of Jesus. Skipping down a bit in the article, it goes on, Psalm 118 exploits at least two architectural metaphors, one a rejected cornerstone and two the house of the Lord. Indeed, the psalm climaxes with a blessing heard from the temple. This cultic architectural metaphor is important for the Lucan Jesus who laments that the house of Jerusalem has been abandoned. It is quite clear, then, that Jesus' lament toward Jerusalem is particularly directed toward the temple. End quote. Okay, I hope you're tracking with me because we're putting the puzzle pieces together here. Luke records Jesus quoting Psalm 118 in his lament over Jerusalem. The temple has been forsaken, it's been abandoned by the divine presence. The house of the Lord is uh, desolate, so to speak. Jesus says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. But that is not the only instance of Psalm 118 being used in Luke Acts. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are being questioned by the chief priests and the temple leadership, Peter quotes Psalm 118 in his defense speech. Okay, this is Acts 4, verses 8 through 11. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, there's Peter's boldness again, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is... Here's the, the quote now. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's uh, from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Going back to Ladon's article now, I'm going to quote from it directly one more time. Now, in this quote uh, from the article, the author is actually quoting another scholar by the name of L.T. Johnson. Just in case it sounds confusing, um, he's, he's starting off quoting, okay? Luke Timothy Johnson comments, The question of the disciples concerning the restoration of the kingdom to Israel follows naturally on Jesus' discourse concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom for Israel will mean for Luke, therefore, the restoration of Israel as a people of God. For him, this means its reception of the Holy Spirit, its recognition of the apostles as leaders of the people, and its enjoyment of spiritual friendship and harmony. Johnson identifies Acts vision for restored Israel as 1. the reception of the Holy Spirit, 2. the installment of Jerusalem's leadership, and three, a community of commonwealth and worship. While Johnson does not extend the observations about restored Israel to the role of the temple in Acts, these proofs of the kingdom create a constellation of related concerns for a Jewish sect that portrayed itself as eschatological temple worshipers. End quote. So, in the Old Covenant, the Jerusalem temple was not 
only meant to serve as the religious center of Israel, but the social and financial centers too. Every aspect of life in ancient Israel society was supposed to be intertwined with the worship of Yahweh. That's exactly how we see the ecclesia led by the Apostle Peter operating in these early chapters of Acts. And if you aren't convinced yet that the church, the ecclesia, is mediating the divine presence in a similar way to the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, recall Peter's sermon during the Feast of Pentecost in Acts 2. When the Spirit is poured out and the disciples speak in other tongues, Peter addresses the crowd saying, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter asserts that what had happened that day was the fulfillment of a prophecy in which Joel says Yahweh will return to the midst of Israel. That's Joel 2.27. Chapter 2 of the book of Joel also talks about how the Lord will provide an abundance of food and wine, something that the New Testament church fulfills as they sell their lands and their houses and possessions and bring the proceeds to the apostles, which uh, then get distributed to the community as needs arise. And then in Joel chapter 3, the prophet promises that the Lord will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and gather the remaining exiles from every corner of the earth. We see fulfillment of this aspect of the prophecy as the diaspora Jews in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost hear the gospel preached to them in their own languages and accept Jesus as Messiah. Not only that, but the day of Pentecost also signifies that the Lord is reclaiming the nations that he exiled at the Tower of Babel. If you listen to the previous episode on Pentecost and the redemption of Babel, you'll recall uh, how the particulars of that play out. But hopefully you see the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 signals the return of the divine presence of Yahweh to Jerusalem this time, however, God's presence would not dwell in a temple made by human hands. This time, God's presence would dwell among his church, the Ecclesia, with Christ as the cornerstone. This is why Luke repeatedly stresses in the early chapters of Acts that Peter and the Ecclesia worshipped at the temple. They received offerings at the temple. They preached the name of Jesus at the temple. They performed miracles and signs and wonders at the temple. They did that because they were the new temple, and therefore they were the religious, social, and financial center of the restored Israel, mediating the divine presence of God's Spirit. This is why when the disciples ask Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus answers them by saying that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the restored temple presence, signaling that the Lord is restoring the kingdom to Israel. Albeit in an unexpected way. There would be no natural military campaigns or insurgencies to overthrow the Roman government, as so many at the time had hoped. 
Rather, the kingdom was being restored in the hearts of those who called on Messiah Jesus, being rescued from the cosmic powers of darkness and translated by the power of the Spirit into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. The cosmic forces of darkness had been defeated by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the natural enemies of God, the Roman government at the time, the, uh, the Jewish temple leadership establishment, and uh, others who would come and go who persecuted Christians, they would all be overthrown as the gospel advanced, as hearts and minds were transformed by the power of God. Now then, we come to the whole point of this episode. What does all of this have to do with the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, if Luke is pointing out for us that the Jerusalem Ecclesia housed the, uh, the specially manifest presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit, we can call that the Shekinah glory, then we should familiarize ourselves with what happens in the Old Testament when sinful people approached Yahweh's divine temple presence in improper ways. If we employ the criteria of An Ananias and Sapphira's death, uh, being instantly and caused by God, then there are only a few stories that fit that criteria. The first thing we should note is that this is extremely rare. The sons of Aaron in Leviticus 10, Korah and his followers in Number 16, and Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 are the only stories that fit. And if you take the time to read all of those stories, you'll find that just like Ananias and Sapphira, the deaths take place because of improper actions in close proximity to the Shekinah glory presence of the Lord. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, were consumed by fire when they tried to make an unauthorized offering before the Lord. Korah and his followers made an offering of incense before the Lord in a rebellious challenge to Moses' authority. And they ended up being swallowed up by the earth when the ground underneath them split apart. Uzzah was helping transport the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They were not transporting it in the way prescribed by the law. The Ark was supposed to be carried by the priests. Instead, they had the Ark on a cart. One of the oxen driving the cart stumbled and Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God. The scripture says that the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there instantly. Now, these stories might be offensive to our modern sensibilities, but we have to remember a couple of things. We have to remember that we are not more just than God. We are not more loving than God either. Whatever God does is both loving and just, just by virtue of who he is. And along with that, I think we have to remember that God is holy. In my view, that's something we don't fully understand and appreciate these days. That God is holy. Recall Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet encounters God in the heavenly throne room. Before he can enter into the presence of the Almighty, he has to first be cleansed by a burning coal given to him by an angel. So think about it. Without invitation and without cleansing, 
it is dangerous to enter sacred space where the Shekinah glory is. If you encounter God's divine presence unauthorized, irreverently, or in a spirit of rebellion, you put yourself in jeopardy, and the results can be potentially catastrophic. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira do. They enter the ecclesia, and they challenge God's holiness by lying to him. Right? It wasn't just man they were lying to. They weren't just lying to the assembly or to the apostles. The Bible says that they were lying to God. And when Sapphira comes in, Peter accuses her of putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. He tells Ananias that Satan had filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Notice the contrast with the other disciples who were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2 and again in Acts 4. The disciples were being filled with the Spirit. The believers, the ecclesia, were being filled by the Spirit, but somehow Ananias has, had let his heart be filled by Satan. John Stott, the incredible Anglican priest and theologian, has a great quote about this. He said, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to, was to destroy it Excuse me, by falsehood from within. Sorry, I can't talk all of a sudden. Uh, let me reread that. John Stott said, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. Ananias and Sapphira were incited by Satan to challenge God's holiness during a delicate time in the church's formation. And when they did that in the midst of the ecclesia, where God's Shekinah glory was, they took their life into their own hands, and the result was catastrophic. Now, I don't want you to freak out and think just because you may have told the fib at church one time that you're going to be struck down. Okay, this is the only instance of a swift divine judgment of death uh, happening in the entirety of the New Testament. So the story of Ananias and Sapphira is not meant to be normative. Just a few chapters later, uh, we read about a guy named Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8 who tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter rebukes him about just as severely as he rebuked Ananias and Sapphira. And he even seems to indicate that death might be on the table as a punishment for trying to buy God's gift of the Holy Spirit, to buy God's divine temple presence, his Shekinah glory, to buy that with money. But Simon repented and seemingly was spared. Now, to give some insight on why Simon was spared, but Ananias and Sapphira were not, I'm going to read a short excerpt from F.F. Bruce's commentary on Acts. F.F. Bruce writes, It is no part of a commentator's work to pass moral judgment on Peter, and that, that's in reference to uh, an interpretive tradition which held that Peter wielded the authority that killed Ananias and Sapphira. So um, it wasn't necessarily... God who delivered that judgment, but it was Peter wielding power from God that killed Ananias and Sapphira. Um, doesn't really make sense to me. I don't get that from the text, but that was an interpretive tradition that Bruce seems to be responding to here. 
um, picking back up Bruce's commentary, he says, It would be necessary in any case to know much more than is stated in the narrative. Sapphira, for aught that is known to the contrary, may have suggested the deceit to her husband. It is not Peter's character or even Ananias and Sapphira's deserts in which Luke is primarily interested. What Luke is concerned to emphasize is the reality of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the church, together with the solemn practical implications of that fact. I want to read that sentence one more time. What Luke is concerned to emphasize is the reality of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the church, together with the solemn practical implications of that fact. The corporate identity of the ecclesia is the new temple of God with Christ as the cornerstone. Okay, no, I'm done with Bruce's commentary. This is just me talking. God, by his spirit, is present among his people in a powerful way, dwelling with them in a way that is reminiscent to the way he dwelt in the Holy of Holies during the Old Covenant. And as proof that the new temple community of the Ecclesia is legitimate, the Lord's temple presence, the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit, manifests manifests itself in a way that someone acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures would expect. The improper and irreverent offering was rejected, and Ananias and Sapphira died instantly. So our takeaways from this story should be no more and no less than those who were there to witness it. We must understand that the church, the ecclesia, is the mediator of God's temple presence on the earth today. And that fact should fill us with awe and holy fear. God is a holy God, and he is a righteous judge. Sinful man cannot stand in God's presence without invitation and without cleansing, because God will zealously defend his holiness. Now, this doesn't mean there are no questions left, right? Why was there no room for repentance? Why did Ananias and Sapphira die instantly when Peter himself was shown grace for denying Christ three times? I don't have answers to that, other than that God's judgments are his own, and they are always just, and they are always loving, by virtue of who he is. I don't know better than God, and neither do you. Nobody does. And it's not like we don't know where Ananias and Sapphira are right now. Even though they were struck down in judgment, they were believers, right? They were part of the church. They were members of the ecclesia. They accepted Christ as Messiah. And that means that they are with Messiah Jesus right now. Because as Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So even though their judgment was harsh, it's not like they got a totally bum deal, right? They're hanging out with Jesus. Now what I do know, and what I hope I've established clearly in this episode, is that Luke includes this story as a proof that the Ecclesia constitutes the restored Israel. And that believers make up the new temple community where God's special presence dwells. Thank God we've been invited into his presence under the new covenant. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ shed at the cross. 
Christ has made us welcome to be in the same sacred space as the Shekinah glory of God. But even still, the story of Ananias and Sapphira should be a constant reminder for us to not treat that with contempt. It is a dangerous thing to accept the grace of God and then turn around and challenge his holiness, even in the new covenant. Ultimately, the story of Ananias and Sapphira asks one question, and it demands an answer from its readers. Do you give God the proper fear and reverence that he is due? Well, that's all I have for this episode, guys. I pray you found this helpful. Hopefully, I've given you something uh, to think about and meditate on. If you'd like to read the article I referenced for yourself, I will be uh, putting a link to it in the episode description, but I'll give you the title of it again. It is called The Improper Temple Offering of Ananias and Sapphira, written by Anthony Ladon. That's L-E space D-O-N-N-E. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Uh, It was published in 2013 as an article in New Testament Studies, an academic journal published by Cambridge University Press, but you can find it on academia.edu, which is where I found it, and you can go ahead and read that for yourself if you want to study it out a little bit more on your own. As I close out this episode, I just want to end by thanking you one more time for being here. I appreciate all of you out there so much for listening. Until next time, be blessed.